morning, church. Um, my name is Sarah, and I'm also from the Santon Knife Group. The best. <laughs> um, the, reading, the reading today is taken from Exodus chapter 7, 14, uh, verse 14, to chapter 8, verse 19. So that's Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, to chapter 8, verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that, they, that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, 
Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, his heart, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Sure, we're feeling winter, eh? Morning, everyone. Yeah, no, we're few. Um, I recognize we are few. There are some benefits to being limited in number. So we had our eight o'clock, our first eight o'clock service back this morning, and we were very, we were so few that I could greet everyone by name. Uh, I'm not going to try that here. We're we're a bit we're a bit too many for that. But um, please be please be thankful in prayer that our Eight o'clock services back. We we were so grateful to God. There was a real uh, spirit of joy amongst uh, the eight o'clock people this morning. So we are thankful to God for uh, for that wonderful bit of progress. So please, if you can remember that in your prayers, it would be good. Uh, just to to tag on to what David was saying and praying for us this morning regarding Youth Day, I had the wonderful privilege of uh, preaching to our. Nakopila Teachers Training Center graduates yesterday. So these are ECD practitioners, formally qualified NQF level four and five, and they graduated after either two or four years of study. Um, yesterday, it was a wonderful occasion. And I, as I was just looking out on the ladies, uh, all these graduates, I think there must have been roughly 60. Eric will nod in confirmation. Yeah, roughly 60 graduates. You know, I was just thinking each one what each one represents, 
And if you think about the number of kids uh, that may be in a class, and then if you imagine that teacher has perhaps a 10 or 20 year uh, career or ministry, and you start to think of the cohorts across those years, and you start to think of the number of young lives that are impacted, both with a with a quality education at a time in their lives when it really matters, that foundational phase, that early childhood development phase, and with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you start to think this is a wonderful ministry. So, so if, you are, if you have a desire to, to, to impact the youth for South Africa, because the, this is the youth of tomorrow, right? They're only four, five, and six now, but they are the youth of tomorrow. And if you want to have an impact on the youth in South Africa, what better way than to get involved in the Love Trust? It's our own homegrown ministry. Uh, it's, it's, it's our people who are doing the hard yards there. Uh, you know, Eric is here. We had Dr. Jerry Goulet, uh, Felicity Weish, uh, Michelle Peters, Lindsay Owen, um, who am I leaving out? Rangani Mbalati, uh, Michelle Mari, and many, many others that I'm not naming now, but it's our people who are making it happen. And so it's people we trust, and they are doing fantastic work. And so I really want to encourage you, if you have a heart for the youth, you don't have to go looking for somewhere to make a difference. It's right here. It's in-house. So please, um, why don't you consider, look, I want, to, I want to make a difference for the youth of this country. Why don't you consider praying giving financially or, or practical service. Let's partner with the Love Trust. It's our ministry. It's our people. There's a sea of need, but here's a place where we can get involved. So please, will you um, join me in thinking through how we can, how we can do that better. I'm going to uh, open in a word of prayer, and then we'll have a look at our passage. Uh, Father, uh, we are grateful to be here this morning. We are reduced in number, but we are so we have glad hearts, full hearts. We are thankful to you for, for the privilege of being here um, or being able to watch online. We praise you, Lord, that as God's people we can come together and hear you speak to us. What a privilege. Uh, and, Lord, we, we, we pray that you would uh, bless our time together, that you would meet with us by your Spirit. And don't let us leave this time as we entered into this time. Please, will you change us? Change us as individuals and change us as a church family so that we might bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week, I think it's fairly obvious from the reading, this week we're looking at the 10 plagues. Now, the last time you probably did that was in Sunday school, so I'm asking you to reach back into the archives and try and remember what are the 10 plagues all about? Not what are the ten plagues, can you name them? I'm sure some of you could sing a song listing them all. But what, what are they about? What do they mean? What is God communicating through the ten plagues? To begin to answer that question, we need to go back to where we were last week. Key verses for us in understanding Exodus. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So you remember they were pivotal last week. Let me read them again for you. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. To begin to understand the plagues, 
we have to start with Pharaoh. Pharaoh Thutmose III was the consummate postmodern man. He lived 3,500 years ago, but he was thoroughly postmodern. We heard it last week. He was a dyed-in-the-wool pluralist. What does that mean? It just means that in the area of religion, he believed that there were many gods. You just have to pick the one that works for you, or you have to design one for yourself. The reason I say he's postmodern is that our culture believes exactly the same thing. We haven't come very far from ancient Egypt. We still cling to the ancient belief that there are many roads to the top of the hill. Just listen to this quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. This is what he says. It doesn't matter where we worship or what we call God. There's only one interdependent human family. There is greater commonality in our belief systems than we tend to credit. I don't believe in the notion of opposing belief systems. And elsewhere he says this, God's love is too great to be confined to any one religion. Those statements, they sound very compelling, don't they? I mean, you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with any of that? The reason we would struggle to argue with any of that or even find something wrong with it is number one, because we deeply love and respect Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and nobody wants to contradict the arch. And number two, we struggle to find anything wrong with it because it's the cultural air that we breathe. We take those views to be self-evidently true. They are true because they are true. When a sociologist talks about our pluralistic age like this, this is what he says, pluralization is the process by which the number of options in the private sphere of modern society, that's us, rapidly multiplies at all levels, especially the level of worldview, faith, and ideology. We have reached the stage in pluralization where choice is not just a state of affairs, it's a state of mind. To be modern is to be addicted to choice and change. We are no different to Pharaoh. We have a pantheon of gods. And in that pantheon, we have given Zeus, the chief god, a new name. We call him choice. The thing we truly worship is an individual or a community's right to design and define the truth for themselves or to choose from one of the available options. So when we are confronted by the God of the Bible, who wants to lay claim to truth exclusively for himself, you and I might be inclined to respond just like Pharaoh responded. We, are, we might be inclined to ask the very same question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and narrowly his voice? It's a helpful question because the ten plagues are an, an answer to that exact question. The plagues answer the question, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice? Let me just show you, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to do a whirlwind tour of the passages that deal with the plagues to show you that this is the case, that they respond to that question, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice? So, Exodus 7.5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. 7.17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord, behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile. 8 verses 9 and 10, Moses said to Pharaoh, Please be pleased to command me when the frogs shall be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh responded, Tomorrow, 
Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus 9.13, this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Exodus 9.16, the Lord said to Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The Lord answers, I will show you. How does he show Pharaoh? The ten plagues. Are you with me? We need that before we can move forward. Now the question is, how do those ten plagues reveal the Lord? Why should Pharaoh obey his voice? The plagues reveal at least three things about the Lord. Three things, the power of God, the justice of God, the grace of God. First, the power of God. The power of God is seen in that he is revealed as both creator and king. We start with creator. The plagues follow a pattern of three cycles of three and then the tenth plague. So the pattern is three, 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 one. That's an echo of the creation pattern. Three, three, one. You remember? Three days of forming, then three days of filling, then one day of rest. Three, three, one. The point of the repeated pattern is that the plagues are an intensifying judgment across every dimension of creation. They are a great reversal of creation. God is replacing order with chaos across every dimension. So the first three plagues, blood, frogs, gnats, are a movement of that chaos from the waters onto the land. And the second three plagues, flies, livestock, boils, are a movement of that chaos from the land onto human flesh. The final three plagues, hail, locusts, darkness, are a movement of that chaos into the heavens. The ancient world thought of the cosmos as a kind of a three-story building. There were the waters beneath, then the earth, then the heavens above. God sent plagues on every floor of that house. Across every dimension of the cosmos. It's his way of saying, this is my house. I made it. It's my house. And it would have left Pharaoh asking, who is this God? Because remember, pagan gods could only lay claim to a small corner of the house. And the house was contested. God is saying, this is my house. There's more. In the plagues, God demonstrates his rule over all the universe by demonstrating his rule over both time and space. He shows, he shows his rule over time by announcing all of the plagues in advance. And on some occasions, he's very precise with the timing. So, for example, the fifth plague on the livestock, we read, and the Lord set a time. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Then the seventh plague of the hail, we see a, something similar. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause heavy hail to fall. And then again, in the final plague, his mastery over time. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. This is the God who rules over time. He's also the God who rules over space. 
If you remember the district of Goshen, that's where the Israelites lived. They were confined to that district. But that district was exempt from the plague of flies. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but flies do not respect geography. At least they don't respect mine. There were no flies in Goshen. None. Same with the animal disease, the disease that struck the horses and the camels and the donkeys and the herds and the flocks of Egypt. That disease did not pass to the herds of Israel. Now we have to imagine these are animals. Again, there's going to be intermingling and interbreeding of the herds. Yet not a single animal belonging to a Hebrew catches that disease. The same with the hail. The hailstones avoided Goshen. Even the darkness would not dare go beyond the permission that the Lord had given it. Exodus 10 verse 22, there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Plagues were a painful lesson to Pharaoh that this is the God who rules over both space and time. They were a declaration to the world of this God's absolute power, his absolute power, uncontested, his power as creator. They also declared his power as king without rival. Each of the plagues was a judgment on the gods of Egypt and a rejection of their religious pluralism. So Pharaoh was probably take, making his um, morning offering to Hapi, the god of the Nile, when the Lord turned that river to blood. Heket, the god of the frog, had no answer when the Lord commanded the frogs to invade Egypt. Apis, Nevis, Hathor, the gods of cattle, were powerless to stop Egyptian cattle dying in their droves when the Lord ordained it. Skemet couldn't stop the boils, couldn't heal the boils. Nut couldn't stop the hail. Re, the sun god, couldn't get out of bed to interrupt the darkness. The Lord simply knows no rivals to his power. He proved himself king in every realm and over every aspect of Egyptian life. The Lord is the God of power. The Lord is also the God of justice. The first plague and the last plague bracket the plagues, if you like. They function like bookends, and they make it clear that the plagues are about justice. Now, you remember that turning the Nile to blood was about revealing how God saw the Nile. So Egyptians saw the Nile as a symbol of purity and life. To God, it was a place of death and defilement. It was a place where innocent baby boys had been murdered, left to drown. Turning the Nile to blood was about exposing the truth, which of course is a first principle of justice. Exposing the truth. The same is true of the final plague. In Exodus 4, we have a commentary, verse 22, we have a commentary on the final plague. It reads like this. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, 
I will kill your firstborn son. In the final plague, the murder of the sons of Israel, the captivity of God's firstborn son is met with the death of Egypt's firstborn son. Those of you who work, study in the legal fraternity, you'll know that this is called the lex talionis. It's proportionate retribution. It's what we know, we laymen know as an eye for an eye. It's another first principle of justice. You reap what you sow. The punishment must fit the crime. It mustn't go beyond the crime. It mustn't fall short of the crime. It must fit the crime. So from beginning to end, the plagues are concerned with justice. And that point is only underlined when we consider the plagues as a judgment on Pharaoh. You'll know, if you've ever read through the the account of the plagues in the Exodus, it's quite a long account, but if you've read through it, this pattern will make perfect sense to you. You would have recognized it immediately. The plagues go like this. God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. God warns him. Pharaoh ignores the warning. God judges him with a plague. Pharaoh promises to repent if God relents. God relents. And then after every single plague, when God has shown mercy, the cycle ends in the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Every single time. He breaks his word. He refuses to let the people go. Ten times the same thing. In every case, the cycle ends with the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Now sometimes... The text explicitly says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes the text says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes the text doesn't make the responsibility or the agency clear. It's just not clear. It says something like Pharaoh's heart was hard. What's so interesting are the two verbs, the two words used to describe the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. When Pharaoh hardens his own heart... The verb has connotations of stubborn rebellion. When the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, the verb has connotations of strengthening or encouragement. So the idea is that the Lord encourages Pharaoh in his own position, entrenches him in his own position. To understand all of this, we look at the seventh plague. The seventh plague is a turning point in the plagues. And as we look at the seventh plague, we get real insight into this dynamic of the heart. So listen to Pharaoh's confession after the seventh plague, after the hail. Then Pharaoh, so this is, if you want to follow along, it's in chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and my people and I are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You will stay no longer. Finally, Pharaoh sees his opposition to God in moral categories. I have sinned. I have sinned. Remember, you don't sin against a pagan God. A pagan God doesn't make any moral claims on your life. The claims are purely transactional. It's give and take. So if you want a successful harvest, well then sacrifice your prize bull. Give and take. Quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. There's no interest in your private life. 
There's no code of right and wrong. It's a transaction. But Pharaoh realizes here in the seventh plague, he realizes he is not dealing with that kind of God. Here is the creator who made everything and rules everything and therefore can tell you how you should live. So disobedience, sin, suddenly becomes a very real possibility with such a God, and Pharaoh knows it. He sees it. He addresses God by his creator name, and he admits his sin. And yet, even with this knowledge, even with this insight, he still goes on to harden his heart. And it is the stubborn rebellion word that the text uses because he knows, he knows exactly what he is doing. This is the turning point. Pharaoh finally understands who God is, his rightful claim on Pharaoh's life, and yet he still rejects that claim. And so God judges him by hardening his heart. And from this point on, it is only the Lord, it is exclusively the Lord who hardens Pharaoh's heart. And it's always a strengthening. It's the other word. It's the strengthening word, the encouragement word. He entrenches him in his own rebellion. He gives him over to his own rebellion. In other words, in judgment, God gives Pharaoh exactly what he has been insisting on all along. He gives him what he wants. And so often in the Bible, that's how we encounter the Lord's judgment. It is simply the Lord giving us what we demand. We demand and we demand and we demand and we demand and eventually the Lord says, have it your way. He gives him over to the stubborn rebellion of his heart. He confirms him in it. That is the point of no return. There's no coming back. The way God deals with Pharaoh in the plagues shows us that he is right and fair in his judgment. It shows us the justice of God. Finally, the other thing that the plagues communicate to us is the grace of God. Even as he is administering justice, while he is administering justice, he proves himself merciful and full of grace in at least four different ways. There are four different evidences of God's grace throughout. First, there's the obvious fact that Israel are saved through the plagues. That in itself is an act of grace. Because it's not Israel's innocence that spares them the plagues. We mustn't be confused about this. Remember, they're not even spared certain plagues. So the blood, the frogs, the gnats would have affected Israel. They would have been affected by those plagues. The death of the firstborn, the tenth plague, they certainly would have been affected by that plague had they not obeyed the Lord's voice. It's not Israel's innocence that spares Israel. It is God's loving grace that spares Israel. Second, second evidence of God's grace are the fact that there are nine warnings. Nine warnings. It's an escalation from the less severe warnings to the more severe warnings, the less severe judgments to the more severe judgments, that is an act of grace. To the parents in the room, how many warnings do your kids get? How quickly do you go from zero to a hundred? Especially when you're on your phone. 
we struggle to be merciful just in our domestic dealings with each other, in our domestic administration of justice, that should highlight the incredible grace of God in dealing with a hard-hearted, murderous tyrant. Third, third evidence of God's grace, the warnings go out to all of Egypt. Exodus 9 verse 19, back in that key seventh plague. Now therefore send, get your livestock, all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord, now listen to this, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses. God is gracious even to his enemies. Fourth evidence of God's grace. In the end, it's not just ethnic Hebrews who leave Egypt. It is a mixed multitude. In his grace, God rescues Egyptians from their pluralistic idolatry. You remember our key question. Pharaoh asked it. He asked, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The answer given in the ten plagues is this. He is the one true God of power and justice and mercy. We know how Pharaoh responded to that revelation, to all that. He hardened his heart. He chose rebellion over and over and over again until in the end God gave him what he wanted. He chooses hell. He chooses hell. And in the end, God confirms him in that choice. Now this is where it gets a little bit awkward. Because that's Pharaoh. But what about you and me? Because like Pharaoh, we are thoroughly postmodern people. Whether we like it or not. It's the air we breathe. We have no other way of being. Don't ask a fish to tell you what life on the land is like. We have no other way of being. It will always feel self-evident to us that there can't be just one truth. There can't be just one truth. There can't be just one object of worship. That we have no right to reject somebody else's truth claim. That's just cultural imperialism. And if we're honest, we don't always want to reject other people's truth claims because we like the idea of spreading our affections around. Exclusive commitment doesn't make intuitive sense to us. It's just boring and narrow and bigoted. So what is going to stop us? What is going to stop us from being the postmodern pluralistic people, I've been struggling with that word all day, pluralistic people that we are. What's going to stop us? What is going to stop you and me from worshipping choice and choosing hell? The first thing, I think, is in recognizing the false advertising of the false gods of this world. The Lord shows himself to be the one true God of power and justice and grace, but, and I think we know this, the false gods of our pluralistic age promise exactly the same thing. 
And yet if we read the fine print, what we find is that the power that they promise doesn't last, the justice isn't there, the freedom is a cage, the truth is a lie. The power that they promise doesn't last, the justice isn't there, the freedom is a cage, and the truth is a lie. Let's have a look at each one in turn. Power doesn't last. Freud's theory that the real was that this was his this was his big thesis. The real power, the real object of worship in human existence is sex. That was that was it, right? That's the heart of his of his claim. And of course, for many that's true. By one estimate, the global porn industry is worth something like a hundred billion dollars per annum. That's six times the GDP of Botswana on porn. There is power in sex. What's so interesting is how that power diminishes the individual. And that's not just my moral opinion, that's the latest neuroscience. So let me read just from one publication for you. Pornography satisfies every one of the prerequisites for neuroplastic change. It changes your brain. It actually physically changes who you are. When pornographers boast that they are pushing the envelope by introducing new, harder themes, what they don't say is that they must because their customers are building up a tolerance to the content. Porn scenes, like addictive substances, are hyper-stimulating triggers that lead to unnaturally high levels of dopamine secretion. This can damage the dopamine reward system and leave it unresponsive to natural sources of pleasure. This is why users begin to experience difficulty in achieving arousal with a physical partner. The desensitization of our reward circuitry sets the stage for sexual dysfunctions to develop. But the repercussions don't end there. Studies show that changes in the transmission of dopamine can facilitate depression and anxiety. In agreement with this observation, porn consumers report greater depressive symptoms, lower quality of life, poorer mental health compared to those who don't watch porn. The God of sex promises the power to satisfy your sexual desires and make you into a well-adjusted, happy human being. That was Freud's theory. You can get that from Dr. Eve, if you ever listen to her on the radio. Exact same thing. Happiness, power is in sex. But the power in sex, the science shows us, the power in sex has diminishing returns. So that this God asks more and more from you in exchange for less and less. In the end, it's not only the God that is powerless, but this God robs you of your power and leaves you impotent in more ways than one. The power doesn't last. Secondly, the justice isn't there. You know, pluralism promises that if we take away the bigotry of absolute truth claims, like Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. You take that away, we will live in a fairer, juster, more just society. Here's one uh, Yale law professor's reflections on the subject. This is what he writes. We're never going to get anywhere in ethical or legal theory unless we finally face the fact that in the psalmist's words, there is no one like the Lord. If he does not exist, there is no equivalent. No person, no combination of people, no document, however hallowed by time, think constitution, 
No process, no premise, nothing is equivalent to an actual God in the central function as the unexaminable examiner of good and evil. The so-called death of God turns out not to have been just his funeral. It also seems to have affected the total elimination of any coherent or even more than momentarily convincing ethical or legal system. Do you hear what he's saying there? He's saying that if there's no one true God, there is no basis for justice. We can't even talk about justice. We can't even begin to talk about what's right or wrong because there's no basis, there's no foundation. Justice is just an illusion. It's a shifting sand that is just going to move with cultural consensus. Whatever the majority opinion is today, that's what justice is. My friends, there was a time in Germany when the national socialist contract, social contract, was the majority opinion. Now, as postmoderns, we might want to object. We might want to say, but what about the pluralist option where we all have our own gods and our own truth? Professor thinks about that. He thinks it through. And this is his conclusion. The problem with that approach is that it validates everyone's individual normative system while giving us no instruction in how to choose among them. How do we choose between them? If you have your truth and I have mine, how do we decide? He goes on to think about that. And he argues that just like in any other pantheon of gods, where there is a dispute between the gods, the big ones eat the little ones. So the only real justice that pluralism offers us is this. Might is right. Whoever carries the biggest stick wins. The justice isn't there. The freedom is a cage. Why do people worship money? Because it promises freedom. We work so hard because money promises rest. Now let me ask you something. The Gupta family, right? The Gupta family. They have all the money in the world. Or at least all the money in South Africa. Do you think they know what true rest is? Now just imagine them lying there at night between the silk sheets in some penthouse in Dubai. Are they resting well? Are they knowing that deep rest? I don't know. I mean, obviously, I can't, we can't answer that definitively. We don't know them personally, I presume, unless any takers. Uh, we don't know their hearts. We certainly don't know their hearts. But what I do know is this, and, and, and it's what many of you have told me. Those of you here who have known great wealth at some time and then lost it, you've told me how restless you were when you had the money. You could buy anything you wanted. But the one thing you truly wanted, the one thing that money promised you, you just couldn't buy. Rest. True freedom. The freedom is a cage. And finally, the truth is a lie. The great absolute truth of pluralism 
is that there are no absolute truths. I hope you heard the contradiction. That's the other chief God. They call it tolerance. If Zeus is choice, Jupiter is this brand of tolerance. The problem with Jupiter is that he's a fraud. This is how one English philosopher describes it. He says, the very reasoning which sets out to destroy the ideas of objective truth and absolute value imposes political correctness as absolutely binding and cultural relativism as objectively true. Henry Ford said you can have any color you like as long as it's black. Pluralists are no different. Pluralists say you can worship any God you like as long as it's ours. You can have any truth you like as long as it's ours. The truth is a lie. One thing that might keep us from hardening our hearts and choosing hell is that the house of Egypt, the pantheon of pluralism, is bankrupt. It's empty. There's nothing there. The power doesn't last. The justice isn't there. The freedom is a cage. The truth is a lie. It's hard to believe this. But if Exodus teaches us anything, teaches us this, even the obvious bankruptcy of Egypt's worship isn't enough to stop us worshiping. Even when we know it. Even when we know there's nothing there, it's not enough to stop us going. How do we know? We know because Israel witnessed the actual plagues. They witnessed the power, the justice, the grace of the one true God firsthand. He delivered them from the gods of Egypt and brought them out of slavery. What is the very first thing they did with their freedom? The very first thing. They worship the golden calf. You see, you can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Israel. Israel's slavery was so much deeper than forced labor. They took their slavery with them as they were walking in freedom out of Egypt. They took it with them. Knowing that our gods are false gods, worthless idols, It isn't enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And that's because we are incurable worshippers. We will worship something. Our slavery is a heart condition. We worship false gods at the level of our deepest desires. It's in us. So knowing the bankruptcy of our worship isn't enough. It's not enough just to know it. Well, what then is enough? The clue comes in the ninth plague, Exodus 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. This plague of darkness comes just before the final plague, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son. Plague of darkness, death of the firstborn son. And then we read this from many centuries later. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours. And at the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The real slavery at its deepest level is our hardness of heart, our stubborn rebellion, which would choose hell. We would willingly choose hell rather than serve God. The only thing that is going to break that cycle is the cross, the cross of Christ. At the cross, Jesus chooses hell for us so that we don't have to. He chooses to worship his Father in perfect loving obedience because we don't want to. In the death and resurrection of Christ, the power, the justice, the mercy of the one true God come together in a way that liberates us from our deepest bondage, slavery to self. One question remains. What will you choose? If the plagues look grotesque to you, remember they're just a sketch. They're just a picture of the hellish prison that awaits us if we have our own way and we worship our choice. Or you can surrender all choice to Jesus and worship him. He is the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, please help us to see the bankruptcy of our idols and the emptiness of the false worship of this age. Help us to see the lies. But more than that, Father, we plead with you, help us to see the truth in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that he came to give us life and life in abundance. Help us to see that worshiping him is the only true freedom there is. He chose you. Help us to choose him. In his name we pray. Amen. It's been really good to be with you this morning. Next week, God willing, last in our series, our Exodus series. It's been a journey, and I hope it's been a journey for you in every way. Um, Folks, if you, let me not forget to say this, if you would like some prayer, please just stay seated and one of us on staff will come around and gladly pray with you. Uh, don't forget to uh, continue to support God's work here at Christchurch Midrand through your generous giving. Uh, the SnapScan QR codes are on the pillars or EFT is our preferred method. It's just the cheapest and safest. Otherwise, um, God bless you all. Don't forget your social distancing. It is a crazy time, so please let's love each other in that way. God bless you. And um, unless our president has a family meeting, we'll be here next week, and it'll be good to be together. Go well, everybody, and take care.